0: So today's episode was a pretty great one. We had the, and by we, my colleague Heather Homan. Hello. Hi Heather. Hello, hello. We had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. David Schoenfeld, who I got connected with um, through another colleague of ours, Ms. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah Madura. Um, I listened to a webinar of his where he talked about school crisis and bereavement. Um, and supporting, supporting children with chronic illness. And I think my main takeaway today from this mm-hmm. conversation was, um, I, I loved when he said that we're never not at the drawing board, so mm-hmm. that we're continuously listening to, this, to the child and family and um, just supporting them
1: and, and meeting them where they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, what about you, Heather? Yeah, and I would say that we're all, you know, we're all just here doing our best. We're going to come together as a community, with school, with home, with staff here to just best support this patient to the best of our abilities. So there's no right or wrong answer, just just supporting
0: the child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Loving them, listening to them, um, being here for them however we can. Yeah. Okay. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode because we surely did. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Recording... Okay. Um, Well, welcome, Dr. David Schoenfeld. Thank you so much for your time today. And um, briefly, before we begin, I just want to make sure that we introduce you to our listeners. Um, You are a developmental behavioral pediatrician, a professor of social work and pediatrics at the University of Southern California and Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. And you're also the director of the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement. Um, Dr. David Schoenfeld has written over 100 scholarly articles and books um, on these topics and has supported students through tragedies like 9-11 and Sandy Hook. So um, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you this afternoon.
1: And I second Megan. We're so thankful to have you. Thanks. Um, So through your podcast webinar, we have learned that you feel a great barrier for supporting students with grief is a lack of education for our educators at school, um, which is a big reason why Megan and I are so passionate about what we do in the piece of going out and being able to educate teachers and staff and peers on their students' diagnosis.
2: Yeah, so what, what we found is we worked with um, a number of different groups in the education field and the American Federation of Teachers had actually done a survey of its membership Um, to ask about teachers' comfort he's talking specifically around how to support children who experience death from any cause, um, and so now it wasn't specific to any particular illness, and it wasn't about dealing with a chronic illness or a life-threatening one, but just just reaching out and talking to children after a loss, and found that many of the teachers, uh, the vast majority, had never received any training in this. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really less than 10% who had ever received any training. Um, and they said that that was the main reason they didn't even reach out and talk to a child because they were afraid they were going to say the wrong thing or just make matters worse. And if you take a situation of a child who has a potentially life-limiting condition, um, that's even more complex because then you're not talking about something that's happened. You're talking about their worries and fears and concerns about something that may occur and also how to deal with an illness that most educators probably don't understand a great deal about. And so, what happens is that children don't get any support in many situations, um, and as a result, they have to deal with it alone
0: yeah exactly and 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 Heather and I are licensed teachers, so in just knowing our um, you know our training and background, you know we were never privi or, or educated on how to support children with a chronic illness and like you said, and what we hope to talk more about in our conversation today is um, what looks like. What does that look like as it's ongoing? Um, so so briefly, too, I guess, before we really dive in, um, just to introduce ourselves to you, Dr. Schoenfeld, and what we do I um, in the children and families we work with. Heather?
1: Yeah. So my name's Heather Homan. I'm currently working um, both in our outpatient clinic and on our inpatient floor with our patients and students that we see with cystic fibrosis. Um, so it's a lot of, from the inpatients today, helping them transition back to school, lot of meetings with school staff and families to help bridge that gap and educate school maybe a little bit more on what life is like with CF Um, also help brainstorming with accommodations to help put in place for those kiddos upon their transition back to school to help ease stress with academics and help school have a better understanding of what what life looks like outside of the school building Um, emotional stressors clinic appointments uh, what all life can entail and and then I
0: similarly um, do do that work like Heather, but I work with our oncology population in the outpatient clinic. So meeting families soon after um, you know maybe the worst day of their lives and getting a cancer diagnosis, and just helping them navigate what school can look like for them. So a lot of advocacy, like Heather talked about, but also um, going to schools and talking directly to peers and staff about disease-related treatment um, and how they can support that child. Um, And before we get started with asking you specific questions on essentially how we can be doing this work better with your expertise, um, we wanted to ask, um, do do children understand death at a very young age?
2: Well, the answer to the question is yes. Uh, On average, children will learn the concepts about death between about five to seven years of age. Um, but children who have a potentially life-limiting condition, um, they tend to have a precocious understanding of the concepts of death. They learn it earlier. Sure. And children who have had experiences where they've had a family member or a close friend who have died also um, learn it earlier. So I've, I've actually worked with children who are less than two years of age um, who clearly have understood the concepts of death and, and what it means to them. They may not have a very you know, robust understanding, but they do understand the basic information. And so I think um, we tend to like to think that children don't understand this, um, but, but they do. And, you know, I remember going to a workshop that Kubler-Ross uh, provided many years ago, and she talked about how children uh, will communicate their understanding of death, um, and sometimes it's in through what she called plain English, uh, just they'll directly ask, Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll ask more symbolically, and she talked about one child just saying that he was afraid of the dark. Um, and so the nurse turned the light on in the room and left and then realized that wasn't what the child was asking about. Um, and sometimes children communicated more through their behavior. So we tend not to want to see that, so we often feel that children don't understand, but in fact, many of them do.
0: Sure. And, and so in that also, um, and, and I guess it's different for Heather and I's population CF, typically you'd, you'd, you'd know that diagnosis at birth and oncology of course can happen at any time. Um, but, and I'm not an expert on trauma, but I would believe, um, a diagnosis to be a traumatic event for any family um, so can you speak to what is, what is happening to a child's brain so maybe if we're more specifically thinking about a cancer diagnosis what is happening to a child's brain when that traumatic news of a diagnosis a life-threatening diagnosis happens how are they able to really process through that
2: well, I think there are multiple layers to that. First off, some of what they're responding to is likely the reactions of the parents. Mm-hmm. And so if the parents are extremely distressed, they pick up that distress
0: mm-hmm. and
2: they may become distressed as a result of that, even if they don't understand what's happening at all. In fact, there's, there was some research done that children's anxiety of death that have children with cancer, their anxiety of death is higher, even if they've never been told. So part of it may be just that they understand there's something very serious mm-hmm. um, or very upsetting. So I remember talking to a parent. Um, I was meeting with both of the parents, and the child was there. And I, the child had Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and he was about, I'd say, probably about seven. And he hadn't been told his diagnosis yet. He had been fairly recently diagnosed, and physically was doing well at that point and um as we started to talk the parents brought him to the appointment to have a discussion and to to disclose the diagnosis and um the, we'd start talking and his mother would get a little upset and then he'd ask how much longer the appointment would be um and then finally at one point i you know was talking a little bit more with the mother and she started to get tearful and he just looked up and he said i think it's time to leave i don't want to be here anymore
1: yeah. and i
2: just looked at him and said it must be difficult to see your mother upset. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't want my mother to be upset, I'd like to leave. And at that point his mother just said, come sit in my lap, we have something we have to discuss. Yeah. And so the issue is that just seeing the distress in the parent is upsetting, uh, very upsetting to the child. So I think we have to factor some of that in as well. Mm-hmm. So it may not be that the child even understands what's going on or has even been told that they'll pick up the distress. But Children, um, when they get a diagnosis of a potentially life limiting condition, particularly when they're young, they may not understand the um, long term implications of it, and they generally don't at first. Um, so, in some ways, it may be less traumatic to deliver that to a young child, the diagnosis, than it is to a parent. And so, I think that for some kids, particularly if they have a chronic illness that has you know that may shorten their lives, but may not. That they may not really even fully appreciate that at a very young age. And so sometimes it's easier for them to grow into their understanding of the condition, which is very different, in my opinion, than withholding the diagnosis and the information.
0: Yeah, and and two, what what can we? I, I think um, as kids navigate through CF or or a cancer diagnosis everybody around them has a hard time um, knowing what expectations for that child should look like so whether that be school or even you know at home behaviorally Um, and I see schools and families and I know you do too Heather really struggling with that so what can you say about how our children are um, you know our expectations for how they are supposed to academically perform when they're battling this
2: well, I think for for any child, we want them to try their best uh-huh. um, and we need to make the accommodations that are necessary for them to achieve as well as they can. so with children who have um, are either undergoing treatment for cancer. Or they have cystic fibrosis, and they're trying to accommodate that illness. There are a couple different things that might be impacting their ability to learn. One is just physically how they're feeling, mm-hmm. um, and so there are certain components of the of both of those illnesses and conditions, uh, as well as the treatments, particularly for cancer, mm-hmm. which may cause significant symptoms and problems and result in hospitalizations and. And removal from school and interfere with their ability to do their homework so I think we have to we have to provide the accommodations that we would do for any child who is sick um, even if it weren't a serious condition Um, you know if they broke their bone and they were in the hospital and had surgery you know and there was it was not life-threatening there was no concern about the seriousness Of the condition, other than it needed its treatment, we still need to consider that for children, and particularly for kids with cancer, and to some extent, also, of course, with cystic fibrosis. There are medical treatments and there are complications that occur. Um, Some of them, you know, fever and neutropenia, or, um, you know, a worsening of their respiratory status because of an infection that may make them too ill to study. Uh, and do their work and remove them from school. So we have to make sure we give those accommodations. Then there's also the emotional distress
1: um, yeah. of
2: having a diagnosis that has potentially very serious complications to it, um, and that that emotional distress may also interfere with their ability to concentrate, their sleeping, their you know. So there may be those elements of adaptation and adjustment that also require. Um, significant accommodations, but i also t- I also see for children who have serious conditions that sometimes um, parents don't want to place limits on their children,
0: Yes, they feel yeah. that they
2: already have this limitation potential limitation of you know not being able to live as long as you know they ought to in the absence of the illness or that they may have so many um, limitations placed on them by their illness itself, mm-hmm. um, that it's not fair, so they don't want to place additional limitations. But I, I tell parents that what's appropriate for all children is appropriate for their children, too, no matter what illness they have. And they have to have expectations placed on them. They have to be able to deal with um, you know, people saying no or them not being able to do what they would like to do. Because if children don't have any limitations placed on them by their parents, then they just become, you know, spoiled, and, um, and they're not pleasant to be with, and they're not, they're not pleasant to be either. I mean, children mm-hmm. do want to have structure, appropriate structure, um, and if there are no limits, that feels overwhelming to some children.
0: So would you agree that it's kind of this marriage between, you know, what we believe to be an, an appropriate structure, but then also following the child's lead? So if we set up a, a, you know, tentative modified school plan, but the child has, you know, severe anxiety and the worry and the stress that's coming along with, with treatment and diagnosis impedes on that, that, that we come back to the drawing table and, and change the plan accordingly.
2: I I would hope we would do that with every child in school. I mean, that's obviously what our goal (laughs) is, is to meet children where they're at, Yes, and if they have something that's interfering with their learning, to try and accommodate that to the extent that that we can. And we can never predict the course of the illness, or certainly the course of their adaptation to the illness, so we will Mm -hmm. always be at the drawing board. I don't know that you ever leave. Yeah. Um, Particularly with a child who has a serious, potentially life-limiting condition, which has a lot of ups and downs.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: You know, usually the courses are not linear. Mm
0: -hmm. It's not
2: just that they feel Mm -hmm. really, really sick, and then, you know, in a week they'll feel, you know, 20% less ill, Mm -hmm. and then a week later. You know, they're not predictable. Yeah. uh, As with most serious illness. So we always have to see how they're doing, and then there are other things that may worry and upset them. Children are not defined solely by their illness, and they shouldn't be, and mm-hmm. families should define themselves solely by that illness, and there will be other stressors, um, and there will be other things that are positive events that will happen happen in the life of the child and the family, and that's gonna impact how they do. So they might be doing well with the treatment of their illness, but a peer, who they know in clinic, may not,
0: yeah.
2: and that may impact them as well. So. I, I think we we always have to be monitoring how children are doing, mm-hmm. and uh, and try and help them do the best that they can.
0: And I I love that we'll always be at the drawing board. I think mm-hmm. I think that's great.
1: And Heather, what were you gonna ask? I was just gonna say, speaking back um, to where you spoke about the initial diagnosis being a traumatic event for for a student or a child, um, you know, in terms of CF those traumatic triggers seem to through my experience occur periodically through different phases of life and different phases of treatment seeing that more specifically recently transitioning from middle school to high school to where you were you know again speaking to you want to keep that piece of normalcy but at the same time these kids are starting to have thought processes of graduation and what life's going to look like after graduation um, family life college etc um, and one of our goals is just to be able to continually support these children through these phases and through these um, quite possibly like many traumatic triggers.
2: You're going to find that as children get older developmentally, um, they start to understand things a little bit differently. So, an explanation that was given at a younger age may no longer be satisfying, and they may want further information. Or they may face a particular developmental milestone, as you mentioned, uh, graduation, transition from one school to another, where um, they may now start to understand the implications of their illness um, and in a different way uh, when being confronted by that. Um, Or it it may just be that there's uh, something that reminds them about their illness or they start to realize that, Part of what they would like to do, or hope to do, or aspire to do, may now be more questionable. Um, Or maybe that they've been hospitalized and had some complication and start to resent the illness more because of what what it prevents them from doing that may not be as much of an issue when they were younger. So children are constantly going to be renegotiating the relationship with their illness. Whether it's because of their developmental progression, the certain you know certain things that occur in their life, or it may be that their physical condition deteriorates, that they start to you know they reach certain negative milestones where they've lost some function, mm-hmm. um, and that creates another um, you know crisis for them. So, you know. As we've said, I mean, this is not a smooth, linear process. Mm -hmm. There will be a lot of back and forth. And what's complicated about it is it's not just that the child's navigating this. It's the parents. It's the siblings. It's other family members. And they each have their nonlinear course. And people get out of sync. You know, one person is maybe more accepting of certain limitations, but another family member may not be. Um, And so... It's it's not like everyone goes through this together in synchrony. Um, it it gets complicated because you might have, you know, the mother might be feeling in one way, the father might be feeling in mm-hmm. another way, the child's in a different way, the healthcare team might have different mm-hmm. feelings about what the future or the present holds. And all of that can be complicated. And then you have the teacher trying to figure out how to navigate that. So. You know, we, we don't expect the classroom educator to be the one counseling the child or giving advice to the family. We just want them right. to be attentive, sensitive, empathic, and do their best to try and help the classroom environment be as positive as possible for the child, depending on where
1: they're at. I think that'll be so important for us to continue to communicate to the teachers we work with daily. Yeah. it is. It is not your job to support this student like a hundred percent and like You're you're a
0: part do. of the community that's right. doing that and right. you don't have to know all of the answers. And I also think it's important that you talked about too that and it kind of seems like, oh well that's a no brainer that each child is unique and their story their own and um and that each plan for each different child is is individualized. But so often in working with schools, um you know you'll hear things like well oh we've had students with leukemia in the past so we understand how this works or um and and that there are so many different components whether it's the family dynamic or social economic status or i mean um just or or you know how how they're coping with this that's impacting their overall journey specifically their school journey and so um, to, like you said, just always be at the drawing board and following the child 's child 's lead um, but so earlier, Heather had spoke to trauma triggers, and I was wondering if you could talk to us about what what is a trauma trauma trigger, excuse me, and a grief trigger
2: okay so um... And I think some of um, how those terms are used may be different to how you would be applying it in this situation. Okay. Some of it may be reminders as opposed to triggers. Okay. Um, But when we talk about trauma triggers, that's usually individuals who have experienced um, a significant episode of trauma, a traumatic event that might... um, that might initiate post-traumatic reactions. And usually in those situations, it's either been exposure to or threat of death or serious uh, injury uh, or assault. Um, and so when people talk about uh, trauma from a post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. um, vantage point, that's usually what they're thinking about. So it isn't so much a receiving a diagnosis, it's potentially life-limiting, which can be very distressing. Um, so there's a little difference between kind of trauma and distress, okay. although in common language people merge them. Okay. Um, so I think there will be certain things that will remind, when you're talking about trauma, triggers, it's something that reminds them of the traumatic event. So they've uh, they've witnessed a shooting and they hear a loud noise and that reminds them of the sound they heard in the shooting. They were um, seriously in danger at the time of a... A hurricane, um, and saw people, uh, you know, due to the flooding, die.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so then, what happens is when they have, uh, when it's stormy weather out, they become very distressed. And that's what people usually refer to as trauma triggers. Whereas I think with it, a, a child who has a potentially life-limiting condition or a serious chronic illness, that things that remind them of that may um, bring back some of the feelings they had when they were diagnosed or. When, so let's say you have a child with cystic fibrosis and they develop um, upper respiratory infection and it becomes more serious and they get hospitalized. So every time they feel a sneeze or um, they start to worry that they have a cold, they'll start to get very upset because it reminds them of the hospitalization and all the distress Mm -hmm. that was associated with that. So in that way, I don't... I don't know that I would call that a trauma trigger as opposed to uh, something that distresses them because of what it reminds them. With grief triggers, those are more situations where there's something that reminds them of the person that died. So it might be um, that they smell perfume that reminds them of the perfume that this family member or friend used to use. It might be a song that they used to sing together. It might be even that a meal is served at a restaurant and it reminds them of the favorite meal of the person that died. So with grief triggers, it could be almost anything that reminds you of the person. Um, So, you know, you might, for example, um, you know, in in our uh, website, we have a clip of a girl who talks about the fact she was in biology class, and they were talking about blood vessels. And one of the teachers asked, about aneurysms and so she raised her hand and volunteered what an aneurysm was and the teacher asked well what can happen if you have an aneurysm and she said you know if it's in an important organ like the brain and it ruptures then the person can die and then she just kind of said to me in the interview you know it's not my teacher's fault she didn't know that's how my father died but you know she said it's kind of ironic somebody can say something that means nothing to them and it means a whole lot to the person so I think that there's you're going to have situations where children are, have potentially life-limiting conditions or serious chronic illnesses, and somebody says something that seems very innocuous. You know, it, it isn't intended to be upsetting, but it reminds them of the fact that, um, you know, they have difficulties in that area. So it might even be just an expression yeah. where somebody says, oh, you know, it takes my breath away. Well, that mm-hmm. may mean something very different to someone so true. with yeah. cystic fibrosis. Dr. And so those are, I think, which you're which meaning by triggers. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, can I ask one question? If you had, like, one takeaway from that about how we could help the students we work with at school who may be experiencing those.
0: People saying things people that are things. Um, kind of triggering a response mm-hmm. right. like
1: we talked about. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. What is, what's one takeaway that you would say that we could do to help provide support to that student?
2: Sure. Well, first up, I think it's helpful to have a conversation with the student to let them know this can happen, and it doesn't mean you're overreacting or crazy, you know, that something just reminds you or or triggers some of the feelings that you had. And then let the classroom educator to know that that can occur during class. You, you really don't want the educator to be afraid to say anything sure, that might right. remind the child mm-hmm. of their illness or of a of a peer uh, who died from a similar illness because that then you won't really be able to talk very much Mm -hmm. so there are certain things we should always be sensitive about Um, you know an example we always use if you're going to do an activity about Father's Day and have them write a card together you do have to acknowledge that some people may not have a father who is alive or currently living with them and you want to you know, let them know they can still do the activity thinking about their memories or picking another male in their life who was important, you know, so that you don't have a child who doesn't know what to do because they don't feel like they can complete the lesson. So I think if there's something that has a higher likelihood of being a trigger for kids in class, you can introduce it in a a more kind of supportive way. Mm -hmm. But I think the other thing is to let kids know if they feel overwhelmed that they have a safety plan that they can... For example, if, if they tend to get triggers and they seem overwhelming and they're afraid they're going to cry in class or get highly distressed, then you can give them permission ahead of time to say, you know, if this bothers you or upsets you, um, you can step out of the classroom and go speak to the nurse or the counselor or the social worker or whatever you have as your plan or sometimes just have them sit in the library for five or ten minutes until they feel more composed and they can come back. And if kids know they can leave, then they don't feel it's trapped, and they don't worry that they're gonna get overwhelmed, and then usually they don't have to leave. So I had one teacher that worked out with her student. Um, The student actually had experienced the death of a parent in this case, and um, she wore a hoodie to class, and whenever she was feeling overwhelmed, she put the hood up. And they called it a hoodie moment, and the teacher knew during those moments not to call on her. Because she wasn't accessible at that point, and then she just put the hood down when she was ready to get called on again. And in that way, they just communicated, in you know, between them, in a way that wasn't embarrassing. Mm-hmm. The tears in class, no. And he just said, "Well, it's better than her being home grieving by herself. And I'll let her tell me when she's ready. You know, she's at least getting something out of the class." So I think working out. You know, what can a kid do when it starts to overwhelm them? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's probably the main take-home message is to know it can occur, let the child know it's going to, that it may occur, and that that's typical, and let the teacher know that it does occur, and we have a plan for what we're going to do with
1: that.
0: And I love that hoodie moment example because that really speaks to how much we we need to work together Mm -hmm. as a a team. So, you know, whether it's a a hospital advocate like Heather and I and the family and certainly the child involved in the school, Mm -hmm. working together as a team to really individualize this plan, to find that hoodie moment for each child because, you know, it's not a black and white um, and, and sometimes I think that Heather and I do run into that with schools where they're looking to us for this black and white um, kind of pamphlet on how to support this child and um, steps A, B, and C to implement and then things are going to be great. Um, and so knowing that it takes a lot of trial and error sometimes, um, mm-hmm. the, the child's input on on finding that, you know, that hoodie moment Um, And I also wanted to to revisit and go back to what you said, and I'm glad you said it um, about, because I think it's so, you know, we're meeting our families in clinic and, you know, asking, you know, how's school going, what's going well, and what do you feel you need more support with, and it's easy for us as we grow so close to these families Um, and advocating for them when they do share with us maybe a disappointing moment um, where something happened at school and something that you know was said and it upset them. Um, I'm specifically thinking about a recent incident with a child of mine that just lost her hair um, of course due to chemotherapy and had her hood up and a teacher took the hood off and rubbed her bald head and said, oh, it looks good. And so of course that teacher didn't mean any ill will, but the child was pretty upset about it and and communicating the, or telling me the story in clinic. And my initial reaction is to be like, oh my gosh, you know, what was that teacher thinking? And, and to just to validate um, the child, but to take that moment instead of saying that, oh my gosh, what was that person thinking? And to, to saying, you know, I'm sorry that that happened and I'm sorry it, it made you feel like that. And I understand, but you know, and, and it's, and it's okay that you're feeling this way, but, um, things like this may happen because people don't understand your disease and they don't understand what it means like to be bald. And what can we do? what can we tell that teacher to do next time? So using it as like this teachable moment and not just kind of event session, if you will. Um,
2: you know, I, have a, I do a lot of work with families of children who have Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Yeah. And, you know, often those children are diagnosed when they look well and mm-hmm. have limited limitations. and But the prognosis is, you know, very serious. And so I was talking with one one mother, and she said that, her son was probably about eight or so, and he was um, having some muscle weakness. And so he was using one of the electric carts that was in a, a store. Um, and somebody saw him and said, you know, you really shouldn't be playing with those. Those yeah. are really for, for mm-hmm. older people who have real disabilities. Wow. And so, you know, he was kind of embarrassed, didn't know exactly what to say. And his mother was in the, mar- in a marketing field. So what she did was she prepared business cards for him. And so that when people said things like that in public, um, he handed over the card. And it just said, you know, you've just met a child who has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Wow. You can learn more about this illness at this website. <laughs> um, and also, and you can donate um, to help. Wow. Research oh, that's
0: so bacteria. wonderful. And really? he would
2: hand out the card. And he would feel like he was empowered. Mm -hmm. He was helping to educate the public and hopefully raise money uh, for research in the area. So I think that, you know, I would like to believe um, that everyone is well-intentioned, and I'd like to believe that most people can act on those intentions and do things that are supportive and helpful. Absolutely. But often people Mm -hmm. say things which are ill-informed or, you know, maybe they maybe that teacher thought that by, you know, normalizing the experience of not having hair and saying that's actually beautiful um, might, you know, help uh, the child. And and I think most people would realize that probably wouldn't when it's done that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, maybe it would have been what she would have wanted done. And so I think the issue is to try not to get angry, but to do what you said. You know, I share with you that that's Difficult. I'm sorry that happened. Let's figure out what we could do so yeah. that it works better.
0: Yeah.
2: And um, if you approach um, people, you know, criticizing what they've done, then they tend to become defensive and then they, they don't want to touch it. You know, yeah. then it's like, yeah. I don't know what to say. So I made a mistake. I should say nothing. And saying nothing is probably the worst thing to do. Yeah. So I'd probably at least join. It, you know this teacher and say you obviously were aware of what's going on and you wanted to help let's think about what she might want because yeah. um, there may be other ways she wants to do
0: that yeah um, and so I know that Heather and I had some specific questions like we talked about earlier in our practice and going out to schools and speaking with staff um, and, and the child's peers about you know diagnosis and treatment and what that means for that child and how to support them. And and wanting to just really make sure that we are um, doing our best work and saying, <laughs> saying the right things. Um, and so, but before I, I guess we ask you some of those specific questions, can you speak to any, you know, research out there that does suggest that this does work and can be therapeutic to have... Um, people and whether you know whether that be the child themselves or the parents or an advocate going and, and talking to a child's peers about about the, the diagnosis and what that means and how to support. Does that work and is it therapeutic for children?
2: Yeah, I you know I'm not familiar with a lot of research specifically in the area of chronic illness. It may be out there and I'm not familiar with it, but we do know that children who have experienced the death of a peer or a family member, for example, a significant percentage, somewhere like one out of five, will report they experience what was referred to as raw taunting, you know, that they will get teased.
1: Yes. Um, and I've
2: seen that happen. And yeah. a lot of times um, what, what occurs in in my senses, particularly with younger children, is they, they may wish to go up to a child and say, look, I understand you have cancer and I know cancer happens in a large percent of the American population and so a lot of people are exposed to it um, and have family members and friends who have had cancer and they have questions about it Mm -hmm. and often don't get much information so for But a child isn't going to walk up to, you know, a peer in second grade and say, look, I understand you have cancer, and I've always wondered about that illness, what that would be like, and what the treatment is like, and the concerns and worries you might have. Could you please, you know, clarify for me what your experience has been like so I can learn? They don't do that um, very frequently. But instead, they'll go up and say, you know, you don't have any hair, you know, that that's their way of starting the conversation,
0: yeah. and
2: it's not in a way that's going to be helpful to the child. Yeah. So we do know that if you explain things to children, peers, then they more likely have the language and the skills to be able to reach out and help their peer. And the vast majority of children do want to help their peers, but they just, just like a maybe even more so they don't know what to say they're awkward in the way that they initiate the conversation they often will isolate the individual because they don't know what to say I also know we we did some research on, on cancer some years ago children's understanding of cancer and their fears of vulnerability mm-hmm. and a large percent of children worry that cancer is contagious
0: oh that's so the, the number away, one they don't
2: want to catch mm-hmm. it
0: yeah that's mm-hmm. the number one thing um, Children ask me, and now I definitely make sure as I, I don't leave a classroom without talking about that you can't catch it, same with c f yeah. and, and that um the child didn't do anything wrong to get cancer that it's something that happens inside of our bodies, and we we don't know why, um, but sorry, continue
2: yeah no so what so i I try and make sure that uh, we do communicate to the peers so the peers know what what they can do, and it may be that. You know, sometimes they're out sick because they, because their immune system isn't working as well, mm-hmm. so they're afraid to catch an illness. But when they're in school, please sit with them, have yes. lunch with them. Yes. You don't have to worry mm-hmm. about that. To the same degree, that's why they stay mm-hmm. home. So it's just that when you have partial information or very limited understanding, you don't often know what to do, and children may do, you know, they may socially isolate the child and I, um, because they're they don't know what to do.
1: I think that kind of goes hand in hand with our, with our next topic of, you know, of course, we always, um, first of all, make sure we get the patient's input before, before going to schools. We want to hear what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with in regards to, like, what we're sharing. And what do they but, want us to share? Right. And what do they want us to share? If they have, if they have a hoodie moment, how can we discuss that? Um, but when talking to kids, what is your experience like? How honest is too honest?
2: I think it, I think first of all, it varies first of all i don't think you can be too honest uh with a child um, directly about their illness i mean it doesn't mean you need to share all the details mm-hmm. or predict far into the future, but I think I always have been honest with my kids and i've never i think at one point I worried that I told them something that was very bad news and it turned out to be misinformation. Um sure. And so my kids went through something that was very upsetting, um, un- I guess you could say unnecessarily. And I remember talking to my kids uh, afterwards and I said, well, maybe I made a mistake and I shouldn't have told you um, that because it turned out to be a misdiagnosis. And I remember my daughter, she was you know, in elementary school and she looked at me and she said, how could you even think that? You, know, you always need to tell me yeah. whenever you know anything. I need to count that you'll do that. So I don't think you can be too honest, but you don't need to disclose everything to peers. There are certain things that people wish to be private about. So I think what you want to convey to peers in a classroom, let's say for about cancer, is that the child has that condition, what cancer is, things that you describe. It's not contagious. It's not because of something that they did wrong. Um, and you want to talk a little bit about some of the the side effects of the treatment only to the extent of what they will visibly see so they understand it, um, and also so that they will know what they can and or should not do. Um, it, you don't have to tell them about the treatment that they're on that's trying to treat the illness, that they won't see the side effects, but you do want to explain to them that, you know, the hair may fall out um, or become thinner, and that that's part of the the medicine trying to destroy cells that are rapidly growing Mm -hmm. like cancer cells do but it also will destroy other cells that rapidly grow such as hair Mm -hmm. the cells that make the hair and that's why it temporarily will happen but then the hair grows back when the medicine stops so just giving them some understanding about it so that it makes sense to them um but i would ask the child what they wish shared and how they wish to share it i remember talking to one kid he was again he was early elementary school he had Duchenne muscular dystrophy he came from out of state with his parents um, and he he hadn't told his peers the teacher wasn't aware and so I said well maybe and they teased him because he tripped more um, and he was on steroids so he wasn't looking different he had some weight Um, and so we were talking about that and he said, said well maybe you could have your mother come in and father come in and talk about this to the class. And I said, nobody else's parent comes in and <laughs> talks about the, the children. That would just feel weird.
0: Yeah. And
2: so I said, well, would you like a doctor or a nurse to come in? He goes, nobody has a doctor
0: come <laughs> in. I said,
2: well, would you like the teacher to talk to the students? And he said, the teacher doesn't know about the illness. How could she describe that? And I said, well, what if your mother talked to the teacher and your teacher talked to the class? And he just looked, you know, like he, he got all animated and he said, oh, we could do that. <laughs> and so he's like, let's do that. Yeah. And so mother said, sure, I'll talk to her. And he goes, no, 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 call her now. <laughs> like right in the clinic. Yeah. And I'm like, you're let's out of state fair. at the different time zone. We're not doing it now. <laughs> he's like, no, 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 get her on the phone. You know, like it seemed like a pretty simple solution. But sometimes young kids, they don't think of that. Yeah. And so you, you kind of ask them, how do you want to do it? Do you want to be present when the discussion is there? Do you want to contribute to the conversation? Or do you want to not be present? And let me tell you what, what do you want shared. I want your permission and your understanding. And this is what I'm going to say. And this is, is there something you don't want me to share? So I think you have that conversation with children to help them feel like they have some control And also they can have their wishes met. You know, if they say, well, I want you to talk about this, but I don't want you to mention this. This is something that's embarrassing. This side effect is something that's private, and I don't really want children to talk about or know that. This, on the other hand, is something I've been teased about or I'm embarrassed about, but want them to understand. So I think they're they're useful conversations. And of course, children may not always know the answers to all those questions, but at least they can contribute.
0: And I, I think that Heather and I both feel pretty comfortable in walking through the specific diagnosis and, and the, like you said, talking about um, the certain, you know, treatment and side effects that are relevant to talk about. I, th- I think the, you know, the only times that I get kind of hung up on my words and I have to really think about, you know, being mindful about it, everything I'm saying is what, especially with young children, when they say, well... I have an aunt and she had cancer and she died. And so will they die? And usually, you know, my response is that sometimes people can die of cancer and you're right. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry that that happened to your aunt. Um, but you know, Johnny is, is at our hospital and his doctors are working really hard to give him the medicine, um, that he needs to try to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, but I don't (laughs) necessarily know, is that the right response? And,
2: um, yeah. No, no, I think that is a good response I, I actually wrote a cancer education curriculum For elementary school children And taught it in a, a research project and
0: Oh,
1: well, we need Before
2: and afterwards I never aimed to publish the curriculum So it's not commercially available oh. I had written a prior curriculum On HIV and AIDS education For uh, K-6 to to K to six and, and did research in that area So um, Part of what I try and explain is that if you if you step back health education in general is what we would refer to as atheoretical there's not sure. if you teach reading there's a theory to how you teach it you use a phonics approach whole word uh, rec- you know sight word recognition you know there's there's certain concepts that you try and deliver and there's a process of teaching and and we understand the developmental progression but in health education we don't really do that it's just a lot of facts and people focus more on strategies like games and things to engage children and word find, but we don't really know that we don't have a lot of theory about the best way to teach it. So one of the things that um, I was doing in my earlier research was trying to develop some of that theory. So one of the concepts that I thought children needed to understand, which isn't usually explicitly taught to them, is what I would just refer to as health differentiation, that Children tend to overgeneralize from one condition they're familiar with and assume that others are similar. Yes. So they know how you catch the common cold, they assume that's how you catch cancer. Yes. Um, or, and for the AIDS education for AIDS. And so, we, we really need to teach that there are differences among illnesses. So, we. So we actually had lesson plans on what are the differences in illnesses. Some can be caught, some are not transmitted from person to person. Mm-hmm. Some are serious, some are not as serious. And we taught health differentiation as part of the lesson. Mm-hmm. And then we could say, you know, cancer is not one illness, it's a group of illnesses. Mm-hmm. And they have different causes and different treatments and different outcomes just because one person has cancer does not mean it is the same as another type of cancer, which is something, as adults, we know, but isn't explicitly taught to children. Absolutely. So yeah. they will mm-hmm. worry that one type of cancer is similar to another. Mm-hmm. So then we can say, fortunately, for ch- although children can get cancer, it is less common than in adults, the majority of children's cancers, the type they get, is treatable and can be cured. So we really can't just assume that because we had some older person had a different type of cancer that this child will have the same type of outcome. So that's part. I think, you know, you, that is what you were communicating, but it's harder to communicate because children haven't been taught kind of the underlying concept. Yeah. That illnesses are different. Yeah. So... And then the other thing that I try and emphasize when schools ask me what to do with a child who has a serious, potentially life-limiting condition is to let them know that first off, we don't know um, what will be the outcome for a particular child. Um, and a lot of, as I said, a lot of the work I've done is in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but the outcomes for kids with Duchenne muscular dystrophy is changing because of advances in medical treatment. And so what we know about the future Diagnosis is really based on individuals who got the illness decades ago, mm-hmm. and things have changed since then. So I would imagine it's the same thing with cancer and cystic fibrosis. So we really can't predict what's going to happen in 20 or 30 years uh, for children as a group, or even in, in particularly for an individual child. So I try and, when you're doing presentations in classrooms, I'm not focusing on the fact that the child might die. Because everyone might die, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, and we can't predict why people will die, really what we're trying to do is help them understand how to support the child with their current serious illness or chronic illness. Mm-hmm. And so the focus is really more on the present, when you're doing classroom presentations, um, and helping support the child currently, mm-hmm. not so much trying to predict what might occur to them in the future.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Um, so kind of speaking back to where you were talking about um, the patient who was trying to find the most comfortable way of communicating um, like items of his illness to his class. And the way that he was most comfortable was he wanted to tell mom, and then he wanted to have mom tell the teacher, and then the teacher tell his class. Um, something we're trying to do here is to create a therapeutic experience um, for our patients to be able to... Um, independently share information with school staff about their illness. So whether that be at CF, whether that be whether that be cancer, but trying to create a type of log where they can almost record information that they want to choose to record or answer specific questions. But I mean, have a list of questions, but choose to answer certain ones, and maybe not answer certain ones, but then to share that information with staff, trying to help in hopes of avoiding kind of putting them on a spot in the spot on the spot in a care conference, um, but kind of giving them that power and that control to share what they feel comfortable sharing with staff and to kind of hopefully help staff empathize and have a better understanding of what life is like with CF what life could be like with cancer. are there certain questions I or think, yeah go ahead
2: I think part of it is you also want to help. Uh, children rehearse responses to common questions they may hear from friends, peers,
0: yeah, neighbors,
2: relatives, just so that they know how to answer the question in a way that um, communicates what they wish to be wish to communicate uh, does not communicate what they don't wish to talk about but also comes across as being socially appropriate so kids might be put on the spot and asked questions in you know the hallway or on the playground or during class and they may not want to answer those questions but they also don't want to be rude um or they don't want to and and they don't want to be overwhelmed now a lot of my work has been in bereavement and so i don't want to overly focus on that in the conversation but i do remember one girl coming to me she was in second or third grade. Her father had died several years ago, and I had actually provided support to the mother on how to explain the father's illness um, and and subsequently his death to the girl. But I had never met the mother in person, nor the the child. So the reason they came for the appointment was the girl, this was the whole reason for the appointment. She said that uh, she didn't know what to say because kids would ask her um, about her dad and she didn't want to say he was dead because that would be too upsetting to her, but she didn't want to lie and pretend that he was alive. Yeah. so she said she didn't know what to say. And I said, well, and, and I, you know, I was kind of struck by the fact that she's telling me this and she's not getting upset. So she was really a pretty articulate and very competent kid. So I said, so you can't say he's dead? And she goes, no, then I'll start crying. And I said, well, could you say he's not alive anymore? And she just looked at her mother and she goes, I could say that. Hmm. And I'm like, excuse me? And she goes, that works. Hmm. And, and she goes, that's, that's, that's it, that's what I can say. And the mother just you know, was saying to the daughter, yes, well he's really an expert on this, that's why I brought you here. And I'm sitting there going, what have I done? This is not <laughs> a big deal. You know? And we had an hour appointment and it was like five minutes into the appointment and then i said well what else would you like mm-hmm. to discuss and the girl said no that's it that was my only question
1: but that was specifying it and, to her and what she was comfortable with yeah
2: right and then i remember the mother looked at me and said so when's our next appointment and i'm like there's no <laughs> need for another appointment now i had supported this mother for you know quite some time by phone and actually i had met the mother once to discuss this dad's illness, and I think she just wanted reassurance that her child really was doing well, and and she did want to come and see me to give that reassurance, but sometimes it's really pretty simple, and I think we we need to just um, be prepared to ask kids what their questions are, what their needs are, and then see if we can meet them, Um, and I'm sure that's what you do all the time when you meet with children in in clinic visits and when you go to the schools to help them. Um, but we can't, you know, we, we don't have the ability to map out everything that the kids are going to want or need mm-hmm. uh, no. because they don't yeah. know what it is, yeah. and things are going to change. Mm-hmm. And so we just have to always convey that we're there, that we're interested, that we will do our best to try and support them, um, and that we're open to conversations and questions as they come up.
0: Well, I guess to just the the last thought I think to maybe end on a question for you is how it might be kind of loaded. <laughs> but I mean, what do what's your advice for how we can best get peers and staff to to empathize to a child that's That's trying to navigate their chronic illness. You know, sometimes I'm shocked. I think, um, was it last week? I went to a middle school and spoke with a large room. I think there was 60 students in the in the room about a child um, and her leukemia diagnosis, and she was um, experiencing a lot of bullying and. I left thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm terrified for the middle school years as a parent (laughs) because Mm -hmm. um, I just felt like I was really struggling to connect with them and get them to empathize with with this young girl. Um, And, you know, I spoke to them the same that I had spoken with, you know, lots of different seventh grade classrooms. So a lot of the same verbiage and tools that I was, you know, trying to to use and conversations to have to get them to empathize and really try to connect and see um, where this child was coming from and and her struggle. So I I guess, do you have any, you know, words of wisdom or thoughts on how we can best just try to help support staff and and peers on empathizing and, and supporting a child with a chronic illness?
2: Sure. Well, you know, one thing is we really should be talking with children about common illnesses like cancer um, before they're even exposed to it yeah. with siblings yeah. and peers and, and other family members so they, they, they don't develop the misunderstanding and they don't tease as much. Um, you know, I, I did a project many, many years ago, and I won't even go into why I would do it, but I was going in and giving lessons about what happens when someone dies, um, and it had a curriculum of six lessons, and I was doing it in pre-kindergarten to second grade in a school that had 800 children in pre-kindergarten to second grade in a very poor neighborhood of an inner city, um, and... Um, you know, it was part of a research project, and we were interviewing children before and afterwards with informed consent and everything. So I I was in the middle of a second grade class, and I was doing a lesson. And one of the children, you know, they were watching a film strip, and one of the children got a little tearful and started crying, so I stopped the film. And the kids looked at me, and they were like, why did you stop the film? And I said, well, you know, John got a little sad. And now, you have to imagine, this is an inner-city community. Uh, very poor, um, kind of a violent neighborhood. And what happened was, I had already given a couple lessons to the kids. And so one of the boys, without asking, just went and got a tissue box and brought it to the kid. Another boy put his arm around him. And they all just looked at me and said, Well, we don't want John to be upset. We'd really like to see the movie, but it's up to him.
0: Oh, so we'll, we'll that's let him precious. It.
2: We continue. And the And the kid just said, I'm fine. Let's start the film. And so we <laughs> no. went back to the lesson, but that's not typically what children do. No. They don't, in second grade, don't put their arm around other yeah. boys who are yeah. upset. They yeah. don't get tissues. But the point was, and I didn't teach them to do that. That's yeah. what I'd like to make. I didn't teach them to be empathic. I merely gave them the curriculum and was teaching it to them and they wanted it Yeah, like they wanted to learn this they knew people died they didn't understand it they wanted someone to talk to them and they therefore acted in a respectful way now you will i remember one kid in that same school same age group was teasing his cousin about his father's suicide and he would mimic slicing his wrist and say your daddy died and you know and this went on for probably like a year before i found out about it and when i sat down with the two kids i was like what's going on and you know the one boy said yes i do tease him and i said well why do you tease him about that and he said well he calls me fat he teases me and so i tease him back and i said well have you ever experienced the death of you know a pet or a friend or a relative and he thought about it he said yes i had a dog that died And I said, do you remember how you felt? And he said, I felt horrible. I said, did you want your cousin to feel that bad? And he said, no, not that bad. I'll never do that again. I'm sorry. So Uh, the issue is sometimes kids tease, and they are trying to, they are teasing. They know they're trying to get an effect, but they may not really understand um, why they're doing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Or what it, or or the the implications for it. So. But I think the thing is I didn't sit down with these kids in a large group and say, you know, bullying is wrong because then kids are not gonna share what they've done. Yeah. I just sat down with them in a smaller group and I said, Hey, what's going on? Like, do you know what that feels like for him? Mm-hmm. And once he, he he connected very this took like ten minutes. Um and he just said, Yeah, I'm not gonna do that. I'm sorry And And I'm not naive, so I'm sure there will be other teasing and there will be other things that are said that probably are hurtful. Kids do that. They get hurt. They can do that will be helpful and answer their questions um, about things that may relate to them, even outside of the child. I don't actually think you need to teach kids to be empathic. I think Mm -hmm. they are empathic. Yeah. We just need to get opportunities to show that. Mm
0: And the opportunities, it sounds like, for them to maybe be able to make those personal connections to it. Um, well, well, if
2: you tell kids things like, there may be times when your friend wants to, is quiet and wants to be by himself, but he still might like to be invited to sit next to you and lunch. Yeah. Here are some things you could do if he's out from school. Could you keep some notes? And help him with the notes.
0: Yeah. Can you
2: talk to him when he gets back, or yeah. maybe you can email him while he's in the hospital? He might not feel well enough to email back, but he sure will like to know that you've thought about him. Yeah. You know, and, and the kid could say, "This is what I would like. This is what's helpful when I'm out, uh, because I have a, you know, an exacerbation of my cystic fibrosis. This is what you can do for me. It'd be really great if you taped this, you know." social event um, so that I could understand what was going on or know what my friends were doing but kids might not know they might say well if I send them information about the dance or the party they might get you know jealous so it's better not to tell them but they might also feel excluded yeah so I think you know we we can help them think through what to do that will be helpful and I think most kids will then do that yeah because they do want to be helpful
0: So I think, it, and it sounds like, too, overall, I mean, we can just encourage the patients and families that we're working with and the schools that we're working with to be doing their best. And when we go to schools, Mm -hmm. just doing our best Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. with that common goal in mind of just providing education so that the community can support Mm -hmm. support the patient. Um, Yeah,
1: and to know that they have somebody to reach out to like from the hospital setting, um, you know, with questions and just to know that it's going to be a process, um, you know, and, and what, and to know what the child may want their peers or what they may want their school staff to know could change over time too. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: well, thank you so much for your time. And I think that, you know, we've learned Mm -hmm. a lot and then also Mm -hmm. just feel a little, maybe validated too. in some Mm -hmm. of the things that we are doing and just to Mm -hmm. continue those conversations and that they are important and, Hopefully, make a difference. Um, so, thank you so much. Well, I'm, I'm sure you thank are you. making
2: a difference. Sounds like you have a great program uh, that are doing very important work. And I guess it, we always question are we doing the right thing? Yes.
0: Because
2: the, the bottom line is this is an unpleasant experience. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. no matter how well you provide the support and the assistance, kids are still going to get upset and parents are still going to get upset because yeah. it's, an, it's upsetting what happened.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So, mm-hmm. you. Is, that makes us judge ourselves and say, wait, could I have said something different so they didn't get upset? But it's upsetting. Mm-hmm. So we just we should be doing our best and just always be trying to think about how to do it better. But hopefully you can recognize the really important work that you're doing every day.
0: Well, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Be- before we go, do you have any um, resources or um, organizations or just to- that, that families can look into or connect with if they, or in schools, if they have more questions on these conversations and supporting children um, to, with chronic well, illness? Well,
2: one of the projects uh, that we are doing uh, deals specifically around bereavement. Um, and as I said, that shouldn't be the primary focus for working with children with potentially life limiting conditions, but if they do have questions about how to explain, a death to a child or how to support a child who is grieving, let's say they, um, someone else in the clinic yeah. um, has, has died and, and the child is really upset about that, you don't know how to discuss it. Um, you can go to grievingstudents.org and you'll find a lot of um, free online material about how to talk to children. A lot of this is geared to educators and other school professionals. It goes over 20 different topics uh, in video-based modules. But there also are free print materials, so you can go to order free materials. Um, There's a purple button just under the pictures on the landing page, Um, and there will be booklets that you can download or order in hard copies for free. Uh, New York Life even pays for the shipping and handling, so it's completely free. Um, And that may give you – I think that's an important resource if you have questions about how to support a grieving child.
0: Wonderful. And if our listeners want to know more about you and some of the um, articles um, that you've written and and books that you've published, where can they find out more intervention or more intervention more um, information on you?
2: Okay, uh, well, you <laughs> can go to grievingstudents.org, and there will be um, information about the Coalition to Support Grieving Students, and we now have over 90 organizations in the coalition, but the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement that I direct uh, runs the coalition, coordinates the coalition. And so you can find information about me there, or you can go to the National Center's website, which is schoolcrisiscenter.org. And there you also find out information about the National Center. Both websites have informational uh, email addresses, One's info at grievingstudents.org. The other is info at schoolcrisiscenter.org. You can just click on on and ask for information, and those
0: emails go to me
1: directly. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your direction right. and expertise with us.
0: Yeah. Thank you so thank you. much.
1: Sure
2: mm-hmm. My pleasure.
0: All right. Have a good day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lifting the Fog. As always, please email us at liftingthefog1 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you with your questions, concerns, thoughts, and ideas for future conversations. And subscribe, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but subscribe and rate us. We would also love for you to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at liftingthefog1. And as always, Lifting the Fog is an independent podcast. All information, thoughts, and opinions shared are for informational purposes only. No material on this podcast is intended to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your qualified health provider with any questions that you may have. Thanks for tuning in.